Good morning. If you would turn your Bible, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. We're continuing to work through this letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. Uh, He pastored the church in Ephesus, and he, uh, Paul is instructing Timothy on how he is to do ministry and how the church is to function under the authority of the elders. Uh, Last week we began chapter 2, we saw Paul's uh, instruction for the church to pray for all people. So we looked at verses 1 and 2 where Paul urges the church to prioritize prayer for all kinds of people. Pastor Joey showed us how prayer prayer plays plays a significant role in the Christian life. Uh, it's, It's an act of worship to God in light of what Christ has done for us. And then in verse 3, which we examined last week as well, uh, we, we were to concern ourselves with prayer because, uh, for others because we know that eternity is, significantly, is, is very significant. Right? We, we pray for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they'd come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would, know this, they would come to know this saving knowledge of the truth, and, and this truth is the gospel. So if we were to summarize uh, Paul's exhortation, we, we would say that the, the gospel is the reason that we pray for others. And certainly the gospel is the central message of what we preach. Right? The Apostle Paul himself, in writing to the Corinthian church, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is more than a message. Right? It sits at the foundation of, of everything that we believe. It's the motivation for how we live. All of our Christian life is driven by Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. We live in light of what Christ has done. And and it's this gospel, this truth, that undergirds how we live and why we pray that Paul expands upon in our text this morning, verses 5 through seven. So as we unpack this truth about the gospel, by God's grace, we'll, we'll see it more clearly, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will drive us to greater depths of gospel-centered obedience. In the context of our passage, the specific application will be gospel-centered prayer. So let's read our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Dearly Father, we come before you this morning. As we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, understand the truth of the gospel. God, what Christ has done for us, how we are to live in light of that. God, we thank you for all the blessings that you have given to us in Christ. And God, I pray as we look through your word that your Holy Spirit would work within us to empower us to see Christ more clearly and honor him more dutifully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So this morning, we're, we're going to look at two aspects of the gospel that, that Paul is describing in this text. The, the first is the exclusivity of the gospel and the inclusivity of the gospel. And our, our main point is going to be is this. It's the inc- exclusivity and inclusivity of the gospel provide the foundation and motivation for our prayers. The exclusivity and inclusivity of the gospel provide the foundation and motivation for our prayers. First, let's look at the exclusivity of the gospel. The, the gospel is exclusive. If, if salvation was universal or all-inclusive, then there would be no reason to pray. It wouldn't matter what you do with your life. You're going to spend eternity in heaven anyways. So no need to pray or even think about God. But this is not true of the gospel. If the gospel is true, then it must be exclusive because truth itself is inherently exclusive. Just, just a simple uh, illustration. If one plus one equals two, then it cannot equal three, four, or five. Those answers are excluded from the equation. If I say this is true, I'm consequently saying that anything that contradicts this is not true. This means when we state the truth, we're making explicit affirmations and implicit denials. Paul shows us in our text by making statements of truth about the gospel. Let's look at verse 5. Paul writes this, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We can look at each of these statements in turn. Right? First, Paul affirms, he says, there is one God. This is a, a positive declaration that there is only one God. This, this is a creed. It's, it's a statement of faith. Any, any declaration of the truth is a statement of faith. The one God Paul is confessing here is the God Paul praises in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 when he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And although this truth is constantly under attack, it's, it's been the creed of the church in all ages. And just a, a brief, a very brief history of the creeds of the church the Athanasian Creed in 415 AD, it said, said this. It says, Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. We, we, we believe in one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one nature. In our own confession, the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, in chapter 2, It says this, it says, The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. And here we stand today confessing that there is one God. Now now we know if we're saying that this is true, then this means that there are other things that are excluded from this. By saying there is one God, it means necessarily that we're denying that there are any other gods. There are no other gods. We believe in one God to the exclusion and condemnation of other gods. Our God who desires all people, all kinds of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he's not one among other gods. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There are not thousands of gods. 
There are no gods except for the one true triune God of Scripture. And as, as the prophet Jeremiah said, he said, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. And if there's only one God, this means that every other God that's not the triune God is a false God. It's a God devised by the imagination of men. Scripture calls them a work of delusion. Jeremiah 10, verse 15. The Apostle Paul, in in writing to the Corinthian church, he said this as they were wrestling with uh, eating meat from idols that were being worshipped by other people. He said this in chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All other gods are not gods. They're not real. And, and not only are they not real, anyone who does not worship the one true God is living contrary to his commands. The first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. This command implies that there is one true God and he must be your only God. Anything else is rebellion against God and deserving of his wrath. And as if Paul is anticipating us seeing this, this, the, the condemnation of the human race because I mean, the idolatry that we see in this world and, and in our own hearts, Paul, Paul goes on. And he says this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This is another affirmation. This is another creed, the statement of faith. There is one mediator. A mediator is a go-between. Someone who intervenes between two parties in conflict in order to make peace between them. A mediator brings about reconciliation. Paul is declaring that there is one God and only one way for sinful man to be reconciled with God. And this is through the mediatorial work of Christ. Jesus is the only true and sufficient mediator between God and man. Why is this? Well, because Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He is perfectly qualified to carry out this office as our mediator. He's God. He came into the world to save sinners. He's a man. He's like us in every respect. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet he is without sin. Because Jesus is fully God, he could endure the infinite wrath of God our sin deserves. And because Jesus is fully man, he could take our place as the new representative for the human race. Because of who he is, because of what he did, He could proclaim in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And throughout church history, this confession has also been passed down. This is what the reformers defended in in their desire to reform the the Roman Catholic Church, which had deviated from the gospel. The the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences, which were payments that had to be made uh, to ensure someone's salvation. They're they're preaching salvation by works. If you do this, then you will be saved. 
Uh, this led the reformers to produce the creed of the five solas, the one that we, uh, we, we say often uh, here at Deer Park Fellowship. Right? We, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And just as making a confession that there is one God denies any other gods, confessing one mediator denies every other mediator. There, there are no other mediators. It's, it's not that there's one God and there's any number of ways to get to him. Right? You can't come to God on your own terms. You must come to him on his terms. The Apostle Peter in Acts, when, when speaking to the Jerusalem Council, which uh, was the, the religious leaders at the time in Acts chapter 4, he said this. He said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. This means any belief about salvation, other than it being an act of God's sovereign grace through the person and work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, is a false gospel. It's proclaiming a false mediator. There are no other methods that men can devise that can effectively mediate the conflict between us and God. Why is this? Well, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? We're enslaved to sin. We're, we're morally corrupted, refusing to obey God's law. We're, we're incapable of doing anything that would give us right standing with God. Romans 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. God himself must save us from ourselves. And praise God, because he provided the free gift of salvation through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. So to summarize this creed, we can say this about the exclusivity of the gospel. It means that, there, that only those who have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, right, those who repent and believe in the gospel, are saved from suffering the eternal wrath of God in hell. I mean, this is the bare bones, this is the bare knuckle truth. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either walking in the light as he is in the light, or you're going to be cast into utter darkness. Right? There's, there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. You're either in or you're out. So, so we have the, the, the truth laid in front of us here. What's, what's the application? How, how is this the foundation and motivation for prayer? For those who are, who are not in Christ, the application of the gospel is to repent and believe. Right? Confess your sins to God in prayer and find forgiveness in Christ. Unbeliever, I, I want to show you the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Uh, flip back over to chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. I'm just going to read this, and, and it really shows us what repentance and faith look like. Starting in verse 13, Paul is praising God for, for converting him, and he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Right here, the Apostle Paul is first confessing his sin. Right, he says, I was a blasphemer. This means he was a slanderer. He, he was a persecutor. Paul persecuted Christians. An insolent opponent, Paul violently opposed the gospel. He's confessing his particular sins to God. And he's also confessing Christ. Right? He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's making a public declaration that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. He's confessing, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's giving all the glory to God. He says, God's grace overflowed for me. Christ Jesus saved me. Christ displayed his perfect patience as he brought me to himself, even though I don't deserve it. I was a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior. He is confessing Christ and giving glory to God. So if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sin, confess Christ, and give the glory to God. Now, if you're in Christ... If you believe in Christ, if you follow him, we're to follow Christ's example and intercessory prayer for those who are not in Christ. We're to pray evangelistically, right, in response to the truth that, that it's exclusive. There are some that do not, do not have, a, uh, are not participants in Christ, right, they, they're excluded. Right, we see evangelistic prayer laid out for us in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he goes to the cross, and we'll pick up in verse 20. He says this to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, right? He's talking about the Jews, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, talking about the Gentiles, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the Father may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays in verse 20, He's asking the Father for those who will believe in me through their word. Christ uses us to bring about his plan of redemption. It's through our words that people come to faith in Christ. It's through our evangelistic prayers and our evangelism, which we'll talk about towards the end of our time this morning, that Christ has determined to draw people to himself. This is because we're united with Christ. When we're, when we're united with Christ, he's in us, we are in him, just as he is one with the Father. And in him, he works through us. When Christ works through us, his desires become our desires. His love for his people becomes our love for his people. His prayer becomes our prayer. His spirit is within us. It conforms us into his image and he uses us as ambassadors for the gospel. And we don't know exactly who's going to be saved. Only Christ knows that. But but we pray as he prayed for the lost. Trusting that he will save those who the Father has given him. 
So we see the exclusivity of the gospel and its application in confessing our sins, turning to Christ, and praying for the lost. Second, we see the inclusivity of the gospel. The gospel is inclusive. And if universal salvation is is contrary to the gospel, right, the gospel is exclusive in that sense, well, in what way is it inclusive? Well, we must look at the, the nature of the atonement and the testimony of Christ to find our answer. So let's look at verses 6 and 7, starting with verse 6. So, this, so Christ, the, the one mediator, the one mediator between God and man, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And we, we could spend so much time here this morning uh, talking about what Christ did on the cross, right? He gave himself as a ransom. He, he sacrificed himself. He willingly sacrificed himself. He, he wasn't coerced into dying on the cross. He didn't go begrudgingly. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. But, but for our time this morning, I want to focus on this word all because it sounds inclusive and we addressed this last week. It, it means all kinds of people that are included in the ransom that Christ paid. Right, last week, Pastor Joey showed us how this word all is used throughout the section uh, the first section of chapter 2, and it's referring to different types of people. When Paul urges the church in Ephesus to pray for all people and all who are in high positions of authority, they're, they're not to discriminate in their prayers. They're, they're, they're to pray for even the most wicked kings like Nero, who was the emperor at the time. They were to pray for those who were considered cultural enemies like the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul's not referring to a universal atonement. What Paul is doing by using the word all is showing us that the reason we don't discriminate in the kinds of people we pray for is rooted in the reality that Jesus does not discriminate in who he saves. The reason we do not discriminate in the kinds of people we pray for is rooted in the reality that Jesus does not discriminate in the kinds of people that he saves. Jesus saves every kind of sinner. If you're a sinner here this morning, Christ can save you. This is consistent with the testimony of Christ, which is the testimony given at the proper time. At the fullness of time, Christ came and proclaimed the inclusive gospel. Look at the gospel of John. We can just survey a few passages of scripture. In John chapter 3, verse 16 Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 10, verse 7 through 9, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Go in and, and find pasture. Right, John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Right, whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Whoever believes in him, their ransom has been paid. There, there's no categories of Christians. There's no hierarchy. 
Paul is emphasizing, as one commentator said, that the universal scope of the gospel, the inclusivity of the gospel, means it's universal in scope. This is what Paul is getting at when he appeals to his ministry to the Gentiles in verse 7. He says, For this, which is talking about the testimony given at the proper time by Christ, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am the telling the truth, I'm not lying. So when he says this emphatic statement, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, he's saying, listen up, what I'm about to say is really important. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesian church, which is dealing with ethnic tensions between Jews and Gentiles, that the people that they're experiencing relational conflict with, Jesus was not prejudiced towards them when he saved them. He, He did not discriminate against Paul, the Jewish opponent of the gospel, when he saved him, right? nor did he discriminate against the Gentiles, the ones whom Paul proclaimed the gospel to. The testimony of the cross is that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? There's, there's no requirements for entry. You can be any skin color, any height, any age, any family history, any tribe, tongue, or nation. It's, it's come one and come all. So what's our application here? Well, first, come to Christ. So often we, we make excuses uh, for why we don't come to Christ because we put ourselves into superficial categories that exclude us from coming to him. You may say, well, well I'm, I'm, a, I'm a busy businessman. Right? I can't come to Christ. I've, I've got my work to attend to. Or, or I'm, a, I'm a busy mom. I, I can't come to Christ. My kids are so crazy and they take all my attention. Right? I'm, a, I'm a busy student. I'm, I'm too focused on school right now. Right? I'll, I'll come to Christ later. Or, or I'm not interested. Like, there are more exciting things to invest my time in than the Bible. Or, or I'm a mess. I have to get my life together before I come to Christ. All, all these Christians seem to have everything together. We know that's not true. That's kind of funny. Right? And, the, and, the, and the justifications go on and on. Here's what we need to hear. Right? If Christ has set his affections on you, he will draw you to himself and you will come to him. He does not discriminate. He does not differentiate. All of our silly little excuses are nothing compared to the saving power of Christ. So stop running and come to Christ. Stop fighting his irresistible grace and come to Christ. Second, as we come to him, we go with him. Right? We are to share the gospel. For those of us in Christ, we, we saw earlier in the high priestly prayer that we're united with him in evangelistic prayer, but it doesn't end there. Right? We're, we're united with him in his mission to save his own. Right? Coming to Christ means you're coming with him on his mission. Our God is sovereign over salvation, and his God is sovereign over the means by which he brings about salvation, and he's decided to do this through our testimony. This is what Paul was appointed to do. He was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And we do that today through our evangelism. 
We're we're participants in the mission of Christ as we share the gospel. The gospel must come out of our mouths. And and we're to share it without discrimination. Oftentimes evangelism is hindered because of these superficial categories that we impose on others. Instead of listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to talk to someone about Christ, we, we come up with these justifications for why we shouldn't say anything, right? We, we say, well, they, they won't want to hear it, or they're going to reject it, or they're not going to understand it. That's, that's discrimination. If this is you, this is what you need to hear. If Christ has set his affections on them, they will respond. Our evangelism, however faithless or faulty, it will be successful because Christ is faithful to his own. This is the testimony of Christ. Whoever comes to him will be saved. So two takeaways for us this morning as we close. First, draw near to Christ in prayer. And I don't think this is in your bulletin, but we'll post it uh, later. Draw near to Christ in prayer. Confess your sins and pray for the salvation of others. Second, do not suppress the desires Christ has put in you as he works through you to advance the gospel. So draw near to Christ in prayer and do not suppress the desires Christ has put in you as he works through you to advance the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to hear from you. God, we pray that your word would work in us powerfully to transform us and conform us more into the image of Christ. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.